0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This story broke out of uh, Global News uh, Toronto. And, and again, just m- more reporting on how how much of an impact uh, Premier Wynne's energy mistake has been to a lot of people. Uh, as a result of Global News uh, and uh, Mike Droulet's report from Global National uh, investigating people who had been cut off, people who had been disconnected. Uh, and it's something like 1,400 uh finally, the Hydro One and the government are going to take some action. Uh, here's Carol, and this isn't her real name. Uh, Mike, of course, intervie- interviewed her about her situation.
1: We were part of the billing error problem that Hydro experienced about two years ago. And we didn't get a bill for about four or five months. And so I was, my husband and I were putting money into our Hydro account, thinking that we were covering you know, what we should be. And then in September of 2015, we got a huge bill for uh, $12,000. And so when we got this bill, I called Hydro and said, you know, there's no way we can pay it. So they set us up with a payment plan, which we followed. And then we got a call a week later saying, you have to pay this bill. And I said, wait a minute. (laughs) We, We already set up a payment plan. Oh, it wasn't recorded. I said, okay. So we set up another one. But every time we set one up, it... The 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 amount became higher and higher and higher because they could do it over fewer months. So by the time um, the end of April rolled around, uh, twenty sixteen, we were up to close to nine hundred dollars just in arrears payment. We were trying to pay, and we were we were paying at the expense of everything else. So with our current hydro bills, because we're in rural Ontario. Um, and it was winter time. We were playing, paying anywhere between 18, excuse me, eighteen hundred dollars to two thousand dollars a month. Then, when um, you know the end of the end of April rolled around, and we were about my husband's pay went in the following morning at twelve a.m. And I called Hydro and said, you know, it's not going to come in until you know twelve a.m. Can I pay it then? And they said, no. Our computers will recognize it as being late. And that's a default on the payment plan. You have to pay the whole amount.
0: Wow, that's a clip from the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Mike Droulet, Global National, uh, broke this story, and uh, Carol telling her story. This is what Hydro One had to say.
2: No, oh, I was almost apoplectic. I was, I was, I was beside myself. And when I, I shared the story with my colleagues, they're like, "Holy smokes!" And we just decided, okay, we're going to run this on Global Toronto, and we're going to run this on Global National, and we're going to, we're going to put it across all of our platforms. And we're going to take this directly to Hydro One. And we're going, to, we're going to get in their face, and we're going to say, what is wrong with you? And we, we gave it to them, and uh, we gave them the story, we, should, we presented it to them, and they sort of looked at us and said, oh dear, um, you know what, that doesn't sound right. Uh, give us her number, which we didn't, and let us talk to her. So we took their number down, and we had Carol call them the next day.
0: And here's Carol talking about the end result.
1: Um, I called him, and he wasn't in the office, so I left a message with um, a, a, another lady there. He called me back within about an hour from Alberta, and I told him what happened, and he was very apologetic, and he kept saying, I'm sorry what your fa- for what your family has been going through, um, and he asked for a bit of the background of how we got into this situation, and I told him, and he, he apologized. Over and over again, saying, "I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry," and he asked that I leave it with him for about a, you know until the next day. And I said, "That's fine," and that was that. Um, he was very he was very pleasant to deal with, and but he was also very apologetic, which surprised me because people out here are scared of Hydro One. They're quite they're quite you know nervous when they see Hydro One around, and. Um, So then about an hour and a half later, I got a call from a a gentleman by the name of Imran who said that he was a director of, uh, I don't know what, I'm sorry, but I I, I just didn't know who he was really, and he said that uh, we are going to reconnect you, at at which point I burst into tears, and he said, turn off your breaker, we'll be there, Uh, we'll be there tonight. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I got off the phone and I was just, you know, bawling my eyes out. My kids thought someone had died, <laughs> <laughs> and and so we did what he said. Um, and I had to go take the kids out, and we came home, and my husband was home, and the kids just went nuts. They 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 looked and they did a double take, and it was just the most incredible thing.
0: Those uh, are excerpts from the Bill Kelly show earlier on this morning, uh, Mike Droulet, Global National, uh, and you can see more of this uh, on Global National tonight, uh, and of course a lady whose uh, alias is Carol, and the, the story, just a typical story, one of 1,400 who have been disconnected, and by the sounds of this story, it had nothing to do with, with Carol, it, it's, they're, they're getting caught up in the whole smart meter and, and all that other programming. And somehow they, got, they fell through the cracks and got lost in the sauce. And, you know, for the amount of money that these people are making off of you and me, you'd think they'd have better customer service. But again, it, you know, it, it's, it, it, here we go again, another monopoly, and, and you're the one at the other end of the stick. You heard what she said. She's actually scared. Her neighbors are scared of Hydro, of hydro One. They're scared of the whole energy system. They're scared of, of Kathleen Wynne making more mistakes. Those are my words, not hers. But I I think if you were to ask her that question, she'd echo uh, what I'm saying. I mean, this is just disgusting. This is exactly the sort of impact that this woman's energy plan has had on us. And it's absolutely disgusting. Now, we all may not be in, in, in dire need like Carol and her family are, but it's eroding into every family budget the same way that it is Carol's. Except when you're on the margins, you fall through. And Kathleen Wynne just cheers and, 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 and you know, look what we've done. Well, the auditor general continues to, to say, this is, we're going, something's wrong here, we're not doing our due diligence, we're overspending. We're creating energy poverty. Carol is perfect proof positive of energy poverty. And she just keeps, wind just keeps mowing right through it. She admitted she made a mistake. She admitted it's a mistake. How do we know cap and trade, her cap and trade plan isn't a mistake? How is it any different from this other stuff? Will she be crying to us one year ago or one year from now when there's more carols in the world saying, Oh, it was a mistake. The cap and trade was a mistake. The point is these people do not do their due diligence. And people like Carol are falling through the cracks with her family. She's breaking out into tears. They're, they're rejoicing because this Christmas, their present, is their electricity back on. Are you freaking kidding me? This government and their tree-hugging activism is putting people through hell. At every end of, of, uh, of the class structure, of the financial scale. It's unbelievable. Let's bring in uh, Parker Gallant, Vice President, Wind Concerns. He is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today?
3: I'm good, Scott, and I'm just listening to you, and I agree with everything you've said.
0: What do you think when you hear stories of, of Carol? Here's a, here's a lady that just got lost in the sauce, fell through the cracks, and blammo, uh, pay up now, pay up now. Like, what the heck is that?
3: I know, and that's, uh, she's not the only one. And Global has done a good job of sort of highlighting these things all the way through. Um, I know, starting with Jacques Barbeau, I think, back in August. And they've sort of had at least one session almost a week uh, since then. And um, I was out on a weekend on Saturday up in uh, the Ottawa region and Kanata, actually, and and Kinburn doing um, town hall uh, meetings. And what I do is I have a presentation. It's a canned presentation called What's in Your Hydro Bill." And I take people through, and I, I always get really interesting questions afterwards, and always get a few stories as well. One of the stories I got on the Saturday at the Canada one was a fellow come up to me afterwards, and he said he's got a good friend who has a Tim Hortons franchise, which he operated for five years, and he says never got you know requests from Hydro One when he opened up to pay um, you know an advance payment or put a deposit down, but he said after five years him paying the bills on a regular basis as he had done for the full five years suddenly he says they showed up at his door and they said we need a deposit of seventy thousand dollars and we need it within i think it was a week or two weeks or we will cut your power off so i mean and then i was at another one where i talked to uh, a fellow that uh, ran a uh, foundry and he said he because of his hydro bills, he's had to pink slip a couple of people instead of hiring a couple of people. So, I mean, it it reaches not just, you know, the individual households who are driven into energy poverty, but it's also affecting job growth throughout this province.
0: I think what also irritates me about all of this uh, as well, Parker, is... You know, yesterday the news story was the majority of Canadians, 89%, as uh, polled by the Auditor General, said when the new cap and trade system comes in that they want it line by line itemized about how much it costs, and instead they're going to just mush it into that, you know, big old pit of delivery charge. Uh, They're just going to hide it. That's right. Exactly. So, but my point is if Kathleen Wynne has admitted that the the green her green energy plans a mistake what's what has she done to convince us that this is not a mistake as well
3: yeah it's kind of scary actually i mean that's you know from perspective of all of us i think we look at it and say it's just another tax grab i mean we have the lowest you know emissions of of uh, out of our e- electricity sector of basically almost you know anywhere in the world you know canada's you know is a is a carbon sink it actually absorbs a lot more carbon than it spits out, so you know why we are trying to show the world how they should live is beyond me,
0: uh. Why? How can you say something is a mistake, and I know I'm asking the wrong person this question, but how can you admit something's a mistake yet continue down the same road? And I mean, how, how are Ontarians supposed to have any sort of confidence in something like whatever the next program is, like the cap and trade, that the same mistakes won't be made?
3: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, we've gone, we've lurched along in terms of the energy sector, the electricity sector in particular, You know, realizing that Hydro One is a monopoly, as are all the local distribution companies that deliver that electricity to our homes. They're monopolies. You know, there's not, uh, you know, it's not like the cell phone people. They can't come in and offer a, a different plan, or you don't have a choice. You can't shop around. You know, you only have one choice, and if you've got you know, a house that's heated electrically, what are you going to do? You can't spend $20,000 putting vents in and and a, and a new furnace, in, you know. Well,
0: furnace. again, once you're talking about things like cap and trade, I mean, natural gas, which was supposed to be the efficient way to heat your home, just like electricity was 40 years ago when they were selling us that bill of goods. Then it was, we got to convert you to, to, to natural gas. So everybody converts to natural gas. And now they're going to tax the bejeebers out of that, just like electricity.
3: Exactly. And I mean, and they're, they're talking about, you know, uh, extending natural gas lines, pipelines into rural Ontario. You know, at the same time, they're saying we should use electricity to heat our homes. Yeah. I mean, this government has stumbled, you know, from one energy plan to the next and really don't know where they're going. And it's just a, it's cost us all money and it's cost us jobs
0: throughout the province. I mean, in re- in regard to uh, this case with Carol, here's what Hydro One had to say. Well, you know what it did is it shed light on the, on the need for my team uh, to look at this further and to look at uh, our policies on disconnections. And uh, as a result of that, we said let's uh, institute the moratorium one week earlier is the right and fair thing to do. Um, it just brought to their attention. Are you buying that, Parker? No, not at all. I mean
3: hydro one had the biggest arrears uh, in the province you know they had collectively more arrears than the other you know 60 or 65 ldc's local distribution companies operating here and they only have you know 25 percent of the of the uh, households dealing with them they had a hundred and i think it was 105 million dollars in arrears at the end of the end of the uh, year but they don't report that in their statements they you know they they cloud the issue and confuse the issue. And who knows how many, there were 60,000 people cut off over the past 12 months. How many of them were Hydro One customers? I wondered that myself. They don't tell you that, but my guess is that probably 50 to 60% of those people that were cut off are Hydro One customers. Their, Their delivery charges are way in excess of anybody else's except, you know, for Algoma power, but Algoma is way up there in the Northwest and they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of hectares to, to service, so.
0: Uh, Kathleen Wynne obviously admitted uh, uh, last week the mistake. Will this resonate with people in this story and people getting their their, their electricity cut off and such and, and the way that the thankless and lack of service way that, that this uh, this corporation is handling this?
3: It's hard to know, because if, the, if you've got your power cut off, you don't have TV, you don't yeah. often have access to social media, so you don't know what's going on, right? I mean, that's the, the whole problem, is that you cut somebody off, and they become as if they're, they've they moved out of their home and living in a cave. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, and, you know, there's other stories that one story that Global um, had was this woman was, you know, retired, living in her house. She had been an artist. She I was living on our old age pension, our CPP and and uh, OAS, and uh, they cut her off. The same thing, a billing error. They cut her off, and she was on a well, and she, you know, the pump of obviously in a well, yes. wasn't you know, wasn't working because it runs, it needs electricity to run. So she was forced to go to her neighbors to have a shower. She was forced to go to her neighbors to, you know, get a bucket of water to bring back to her place so she could survive in her home. It's just you know, ridiculous. And I'm sure there are hundreds of stories similar to Carol's and that lady that I mentioned that are spread throughout the province. We just don't hear about them.
0: Parker Gallant has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. Parker, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Well, thank you,
3: Rob, for keeping your
0: focus on this. Stuff. Thank you.
3: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on
0: AM 900-CHML. Uh, 818 laneways in Hamilton, 100 Ks worth. Uh, there's 70 known laneway homes in existence. However, uh, I guess homes that encroach or come on to laneways, Uh, there's about 1,500 of those. Uh, Most of them uh, are in the Ward 3 area. But is there a better way? Is Is there something that we can do with this valuable space in downtown Hamilton? To talk more about all of this, Renee Wetzeller is with us, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, and is with us now. Hello, Renee. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. There's been chatter about this before. Uh, let's start with the history. Why are there so many laneways in Hamilton? How does this happen?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting because the way Hamilton has grown, you know, since its early days has been not according to, say, a real uh, a plan, if you will, in the yeah. early days. So things kind of got built up and, you know, things became a little bit chock-a-block. Obviously, our transi- our, our transportation patterns have changed, so... These alleyways may have been, you know, for cars to come in and out of, and maybe there aren't as many cars in those neighborhoods anymore. And they've just kind of evolved and to some degree sat empty for a long time. So this really is something that is coming at the right time and, and at the right place in, in the city right now.
0: Who owns them? Who has who right to them? Well, in some cases, they
4: there are some right of ways that folks have. Some of these laneways abut onto uh, onto properties, you know, onto the properties that people own, and some of them are uh, more public spaces. And in some cases, you know, garbage trucks do travel. Or at least uh, meet at the end of them. People collect, you know, put their garbage out at the end of them. So there are different ways in the, uh, that these uh, spaces are owned. And what I really like is that the motion that was just put forward today for the planning staff to start really working on this will allow us to kind of get a better handle and have some better uh, legislation, better zoning and bylaws, so we can do some real active work in these spaces.
0: Uh, have you ever looked at this from an aerial view and, and just see what is there a network, is there this, or are they, like you said, too piecemeal to really string together or, or, or make anything out? Does each, I guess, scenario have to be judged on its own merit?
4: Yeah, well, it's actually quite fascinating, and I have had a look at aerial photographs of these uh, neighbourhoods, uh, mostly because through the Neighbourhood Action Strategy over the last number of years, there's a couple of, uh, hang on one sec, there's a, there's a couple of A, uh, the Beautiful Alleys project between the Sherman and the Gala neighborhoods has really brought to light these alleyways in Hamilton, and has been really working hard to clean them up. So, Beautiful Alleys is a project that came out of uh, residents coming together through the Neighborhood Action Strategy to really address, you know, cleaning up some of these uh, these alleyways and making them more usable, and really making them a public space. So, say in the uh, in the neighborhood, and also in the Beasley neighborhood, we've got. Uh, Laneway projects that have uh, alley as uh, sorry they have murals in them, so we have a whole suite of murals in the Beasley neighborhood. And in some cases, people are, you know, having outdoor picnics, they're having, uh, you know, they're becoming congregating spaces. So to talk about laneway housing just takes a natural evolution to the next level.
0: What about bike lanes? Is there any way that these can be used for bike or pedestrian traffic? And, and, uh, you know, as opposed to taking and, and, you know, having the bike and the car going at it head and head?
1: Well,
4: I think particularly with uh, plans for LRT coming, uh, coming forward in the city, I think that these can be a really great part of that integrated uh, traffic system that we have where people have options to ride bikes if they wish and use these laneways as a great way to make that traffic flow. I know that through some of these neighbourhoods, you can walk along these laneways, you know, east to west, and cover some pretty significant chunks of neighbourhoods without yeah. actually touching a street, you know, if you will, a formal street. So I think if we activate these valleys and give them some formal recognition, they are going to become a great part of our transportation system. They're going to be a great part of our, you know, our neighborhood system, if you will, through engagement and also the potential for housing then built on that as well.
0: So how do you balance, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have a beautification program, uh, turn them into, you know, places to meet and hang out, um, uh, and park space and uh, space and stuff, and even you know something like a bike lane. But boy, once you start getting into housing, is that a slippery slope? Is there enough room? How do you how do you balance all of that?
4: Well, again, with all neighborhoods, everything needs to be balanced, right? As much as you don't want a whole bunch of auto body shops in a in a neighborhood where you yeah. have a lot of residential dwellings, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You have to balance everything out. But the key to balance, obviously, is community engagement. And this is where, you know, I I go back to some of the neighbourhoods that we're talking about. These neighbourhoods are have been engaged through the neighbourhood strategy in really becoming engaged with each other and working well to push back against things like nimbyism, not in my backyard, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, maybe what might be a byproduct of some of this work. I think there's a huge appetite for affordable housing in these neighbourhoods. And this is also an opportunity for folks who would like to live in some of these neighborhoods, but they maybe can't afford it. So I think that the culture in these neighborhoods is such that everybody is willing to make a transition. We recognize that the urban boundary is frozen, so we need to capitalize on all the assets that we have. And these laneways certainly are a huge asset that we can work with.
0: So what type of housing are you talking about? How would this work? What have you seen that that works in things like this?
4: Well. So it's funny because um you know when you hear my last name you can tell that I'm well some can tell that I'm Dutch right so this kind of structure urban structure is familiar in more European cities You know what when we Haitians. were t-
0: when we started talking the first thing I thought about was people who put the housing down the canals in yes, Amsterdam exactly. That's yeah. yeah
4: Yeah so um you know I think that uh, when we start imagining this you can think of things like you now some people call them granny flats so you know, it's a, it's a dwelling that, say, you could rent out to a family member or you could rent out to a non-family member, right? But these are smaller dwellings. We're talking about, you know, maybe three, four hundred square feet uh, buildings. But these are little tiny apartments, essentially, that it can exist at the ground level. So you can imagine even around accessibility, we have such a lack of housing that's accessible for people then, you know, this is a type of structure that can certainly build on making accommodation for that kind of that kind of living. So, you know, I do imagine, you know, mostly singles or maybe couples living in this type of housing.
5: Mm-hmm. I can't
4: see it really being like a full family dwelling, although yeah. there are such pressures in our housing market right now that, you know, we may end up having to deal with this in some way or another. But certainly, you know, this is for uh, maybe a young couple or an older person, the perfect type of dwelling for them to live on the ground in the
0: neighborhood. Uh, now, there's already a few of these in existence. Uh, how would you describe them?
4: Oh, you know, it's funny because I lived in the Kirkendall neighborhood for a number of years, and I think it was on Wheeler and Blanchard that we first uh, came across some of these uh, little places. They're essentially little carriage houses, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, tiny little homes and really quite adorable, and some of them have been painted really unique colors because they're kind of, you know, off the beaten path, but uh, they're really just a, a small home. You know, they they look very much like any other structure except they're smaller. Um, you know, obviously, we're going to have to deal with zoning and bylaw and related issues around water hookup and all that kind of stuff. But I think we can work through some of that stuff. We haven't, and an, as I said last week on the Bill Kelly show, you know, you think about a city as a, as a breathing uh, organism, right? And this is just another way that we're breathing in growth and we're allowing
0: for more people to live in the city. What are the challenges with doing this sort of project?
4: Well, again, I think you alluded earlier, some of the challenges may be around, you know, people saying not in my backyard. But again, certainly in the neighborhoods that we're focusing on, there's a huge appetite for this. Some of the other challenges may be, like we said, around zoning and bylaws, but now with this uh, motion that's gone forward, I think we're opening this up to a further dialogue. We do have some other things uh, coming into play, you know, for intensification, like inclusionary zoning and other tools. So this is yet another part of uh, a bigger piece of the puzzle around affordable housing in this community. And given, you know, that this council is starting to make a big commitment to affordable housing, again, this is another tool in their toolbox um, that we can work forward. So it's really incumbent on them to put the zoning uh, in place to make this happen. Certainly we have a very progressive uh, manager in Jason Thorne uh, around all this stuff. I don't think we would be having this conversation if we didn't have Jason Thorne working at the city of Hamilton. So having progressive people like that is certainly going to help us move this forward.
0: Uh, what do you hope to learn from this exchange now that you've put this report uh, forward? What sort of topics, what sort of issues do you think are going to land on the table through this? What, what do you think the talking points will be?
4: Well, I think some of the talking points will make sure that it's a balanced mix in all neighbourhoods, that you know, we don't intensify one neighbourhood over another. And then the other question may be again around affordability. So making sure that there's not a lot of upfront costs that people have to absorb when developing these types of structures. Because it's very, uh, you know, hard to finance that kind of thing upfront. So if people want to do that, let's make it affordable. Let's make the procedures, uh, you know, pretty uh, streamlined so you don't have to go through a huge application process to make this happen. And, you know, there again, the city of Hamilton has taken some steps around one stop shopping. So it's really incumbent on them to make this a very smooth, efficient process to keep those costs down.
0: Is this just an inner-city issue? Is this something that can be taken into the suburbs?
4: Oh, definitely taken in the suburbs. We talk about them as sort of secondary suites in the suburbs. I know when we. Were I mean, it's almost these,
0: you know. It, it reminds me of you know if if you have a cottage and all of a sudden you want to put a bunkie up if people come in and, and want to stay over. But are the zoning laws and such that would allow you to do such a thing in a residential neighborhood in the burbs?
4: Not at this point in time, and I think that this could be you know this work here on the laneway strategy is certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, with inclusionary zoning, we could sort of see this happening in the suburbs where. Um, you know, this might be a way to make a, uh, inclusionary zoning very affordable for developers if they think about these as secondary suites. But it's also a way to build affordability for the consumer herself, right? If you buy a home and say you have a mortgage and uh, say you have a secondary suite, Mm. that would be a great way for you to be able to pay your mortgage and still be able to live in the neighborhood where you want to live.
0: Well, again, you know, as instead of separate dwellings, we're having enough of a discussion with this just with things like basement apartments and, and things of that nature, which can be tricky in some neighborhoods.
4: Yes, yes, it it definitely can. And the one thing we also have to just really focus on and make sure that this stock is, you know, it's safe, it's Mm. uh, healthy, it's appropriate, all the kinds of things that we talk about when we talk about affordable housing. We do have a lot of aging housing stock in Hamilton, so we need to figure out a way to address the capital repairs and the backlogs as well. But again, I see this as a huge step forward in a very adult conversation about how we're going to handle affordable housing in Hamilton.
0: A very progressive idea, and as you said, other other parts of the world have, uh, this certainly isn't new to them. Is the time right for Hamilton? Do people have a appetite for this? Again, going back to NIMBYism?
4: Well, again, I just, you know, we floated, I've just been watching Facebook this morning and all the chatter, I know that. There was a laneway summit in Toronto last week, and certainly that kind of stuff. The positive energy spills into Hamilton. I uh, haven't had seen anything negative or heard anything negative from anyone at this point in time around this concept. And in fact, you know, I, what I'm hearing from people is we've been calling for this for, you know, years and years and years. And so the time has come. Let's move on it.
0: Uh, will, do you think the big debate will be once, you know, you decide to refurbish these and and rehabilitate these areas, Uh, Do you think the balance or or do you think the issue will be between housing and space? Because again, as you mentioned, uh, once you clean up those spaces, all of a sudden kids are out there playing. It's almost like an extra backyard or a park. Do you think there'll be um, pressure on you to keep it open as opposed to putting uh, more dwelling and making it even more dense?
4: Again, I would, you know, that's a really hyper-local conversation that we keep to very unique to neighborhoods because they're all very different, right? We can't kind of treat it all with the same kind of stroke. So, again, the work that we do around community engagement, it varies. So, I think having your neighbors and people who are directly affected involved. Uh, makes for a better planning process. So as long as we follow some good principles around planning and community engagement, we won't get, you know, uh, jammed up by people saying, we don't want this, You didn't consult with us, and so therefore it's not going to come into our backyard.
0: Um, When do you hope to have answers? What's the next step?
4: Well, it looks like, um, you know, they have this working group that's been putting in place. And so Uh, there are residential zoning bylaws that are being reviewed right now originally those bylaws were supposed to be in place sometime last year but i understand there's been some pressures and so things have been pushed back ideally uh i think they're projecting 2018 to have everything placed to move on this which will be interesting because it'll be timed with a, with a municipal election. So, again, I always call on people to make sure that uh, they remind their elected officials about affordable housing and make sure it's an issue when, they, when it comes time to vote.
0: Just another reminder, Renee, at, you know, at the crossroads Hamilton is right now, is that right now, just with its growth and the renaissance and what happens next?
4: Well, you know, a very exciting time. I think uh, for people who have lived here, you know, all their lives like myself, I feel like we're growing into the city that we always wanted to be. Mm. And uh, it's allowing us to take in a lot of new people as well. Remember, we have an influx of folks from all over the world that come to our community. And for some people, looking at the type of buildings that we have or the types of structures we live in, They can't believe it, the monster homes we have. So for them, for some folks, this is just a more scalable and a more appropriate way to live. So, you know, people are ready for it.
0: Renee Wetzeller is with us, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Fascinating, Renee. Uh, Keep up the great work.
4: Oh, thanks, Scott. You have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson
0: Show, weekdays from noon to 3
5: on AM 900 CHML.
0: Interesting that... we're, we're reading this report from Stats Canada that came out and, and basically says that, uh, and this is out of the Canadian press, uh, the new study from Stats Can uh, talking about precarious position, the precarious position of young workers that they find themselves in, and how little, and this is the part that stood out for me, how little it has changed in four decades. Uh, has refocused attention on the federal government's push to create jobs for youth. How long have we been hearing that mantra from one political party to the other? Uh, we've known about this. I, I think th- these stats go back to like the 1970s, mid-1970s, where students were having problem or young people having problem uh, getting ahead. And, and now we're at the point where they're so bogged down with student loans. Housing prices are what they are that uh, – It's literally changing the way they live, a lot different than the generation before them. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at the School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? I am fine, thank you, Scott. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Before I get into our youth and uh, the employment situation, sure, uh, we're we're a lot of uh, chatter today in regard to electricity bills. There's a, a story we're covering now coming out of Global News where uh, Hydro One is cut off. Uh, they did stories on people that have been cut off in their electricity and such, and and now are changing their position and and have a moratorium on cutting people off and such. Uh, the point being is is that people are having a tough time here. How do we feel confident moving forward into a cap-and-trade scenario when the Premier says that, you know, just a couple of weeks ago that this was a mistake? Doesn't there need to be some sort of clarification? Doesn't there need to be some sort of confidence that we're not heading down the same path and going to make the same mistakes a year or two from now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, there's a, a couple of things about cap and trade that we can we can mention. The first is that the Ontario version of cap and trade is supposed to start on early January. And we think it's not going to have a huge impact on your bills. But huge is another 5 to maybe $10, depending upon how much energy you use. And for people who are already struggling as it is, another 5 or $10 is not welcome news. Now, it is true that January 1st is also when uh, Kathleen Wynn's proposal to reduce the GST, HST on the electricity bills comes. So there is going to be an 8% reduction in bills at the same time that we get cap and trade. But it really is a test, I think, overall about what is our stance. You know, it's easy to be environmentally friendly when I blame it on somebody else. When I have to take actions, how, how strong is my willpower? And I think a lot of people just, this is the first time that it's going to come home to roost that their actions have an implication. And I don't think they're going to be happy. Uh, One other little wrinkle of this, Scott, is that we are doing this ahead of many of the states around us. In fact, the uh, uh, backbone, if you will, of the United States to do something around carbon pricing seems quite weak under Donald Trump. And are we putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage? I had actually wondered if Kathleen Wynne might say, let's put this off at least for six months so we can better study our position, not only for electricity prices for you and I, but what does this do for us compared to other states?
0: Why does it have to be one or the other, though, Marvin? And that's where I have a problem with this. Like, I believe everybody wants to be men- environmentally friendly. Most want to save the planet for the next generation, and-, and all political parties have embraced this. Is this about being environmentally friendly, or is it about doing your due diligence so we do it without breaking Ontario?
2: Yeah, that, you know, that's a, this is a good question, and I think... Sometimes you get so caught up in a policy and implementing a policy that you lose the bigger picture. Um, Kathleen Wynne, for that matter, Rachel Notley in Alberta, uh, Christy Clark in in British Columbia, and even Justin Trudeau, they've all been championing, uh, whether it's cap-and-trade systems, which is what we're actually doing in Ontario, or simply a carbon tax, which is what they're doing in Alberta or British Columbia, When you talk to the experts they say it's the right thing to do if you tax something it gives people a financial incentive to minimize something but it could not be worse times as well as these other increases uh, in our in our electricity bills and frankly here in hamilton another 4.5 percent onto your water bills the basic necessities of life electricity and hydro uh, water they're all getting more expensive at a time that i'm just not sure the average person can can afford it so pausing this might make a lot of sense but whether they'll do it I'm just not sure there's the political willpower.
0: All right, let's move on. A new study from Stats Canada about the precarious position of uh, young people in in the workforce and where they find themselves in 2016. As I mentioned earlier, this problem, nothing new. We've been talking about this for (laughs) generations. Uh, What's different now? Is there a solution now?
2: Right. So let me first give people a background about this study that was released. It's data over a 40-year period, starts in 1975, ends in 2015. And there are three headlines from this study, Scott. The first one is youth unemployment. This is the youth up to the age 25. And amazingly, in 40 years, while it has gone up, it has only gone up marginally. Back in 1975, youth unemployment, those under 25, was around 12%, and last year it was around 13.5%. So the good news, compared to places like Say Italy, Spain, um, uh, parts of France, where youth unemployment can be 40%, we haven't seen a spike there. A uh, s- second issue, though, is around the kind of employment you've got. And what we've seen is a decrease in full time employment for those people. Back in 1975, about 75% of people were employed in full time jobs. Last year, that number had declined to only 60%. Still, a majority of them in full time jobs. But much of this now being replaced with contract employment or part-time employment. And then the third headline out of the study is the pay for this employment. And this is the biggest news of all, is that in this period, 40 years, rather than combining inflation and seeing the pay go up, it's actually declined. So we have these people, many of them working now part-time, but for fewer dollars than they were. There were gains in the early 2000s, but all that ended in the recession of 2007 8 and there's been no gains in nearly now 10 years since. And that's the bigger question, and are we, as you point out, with these younger people graduating from post-secondary institutions, now with significant debt loads, whether it's college or university, are we really tackling the kind of, of job and quality of job they need to land on their feet.
0: Is this a huge paradigm shift here, Marvin? I mean, obviously, this may be the first time a generation doesn't succeed its parents, doesn't attain the same wealth that their parents do. Are, are we heading, and, and how would that change things? I mean, are we heading mm-hmm. for a more socialist system as a result of that? Well, let me come at that a couple of ways if
2: I can. First, from the employer standpoint, I know most people listening to us will say, well, this is all due to those greedy employers not giving out the full-time jobs. They have learned from that recession in 2007-8 that they, they aren't sure that any good economic news is going to be sustained, so they are reluctant to add people full-time to the payrolls and to all their benefit plans if they're not sure the recovery is going to continue. So now the new normal is to bring people in on a contract try it out for three months, try it out for eight months, and then if all is still well and you get through the probationary period, then maybe we'll add you to the payroll. I think that is certainly the new normal. In terms of the students I teach, and, and if you hear a little background noise while I'm talking to you, I'm actually in the student center today doing some things. Um, their attitudes have changed a little bit. My generation, we'll call it the baby boom generation, was very possession-oriented. Mm-hmm. In our life plan, we were going to buy a house, in the suburbs with a piece of land, we were going to have at least one car. We were going to buy all these other material goods, a nice dining room suite, and a bedroom suite, what have you. This younger generation today seems to be less oriented towards stuff and more oriented towards building a portfolio of experiences. So whether it's travel exactly, but it might be let's go zip lining, let's go paragliding, let's go hang, uh, hang gliding or things like that. They seem to be more interested in that. Now, if this generation then gives up on some of these material possessions, either because it doesn't interest them or because they don't have the money, then yes, there are economic repercussions from this. Many uh, futurists, uh, and that's not exactly what I do for a living, but futurists looking ahead 20, 30 years think that those people in the suburbs may find themselves trapped with houses that they can't sell. Mm -hmm. That generation wants to be downtown where the action is live in a box of air suspended 20 stories to high, they use public spaces like parks and walkways and public transit like LRT, that the model is changing. It's a little early to know if the future is right, but that could be what lies ahead for us. Uh,
0: what, I, what I think that they're failing to understand is that place in the suburbs, by the time it gets to that point, will be just as crowded as downtown.
2: Well, yes, and then the other interesting thing, again, back in 1975, at the start of the study, it was not unusual for people to have families of two, three, maybe even four children, and you started having those children when you were in that 25 time Mm. period. Uh, Today, we're having smaller families, and we're having them much later in life. Uh, The singer Janet Jackson, who just turned 50 last year, is just in the process of having her first child at age 50, and she's not planning to have a lot of them at that point either. These these attitudes change. They change slowly over time. Now, the question, again, is chicken and egg, is it changing because they want to change to these things, or is it an economic reality that is forcing them to change? And in that study, we just can't figure out the chicken and egg there.
0: That's exactly what my next question was, Marvin. Is it that they aren't interested, or is it it's just not in their future? They just can't afford it?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think there's a bit of both going on there, and I also think it depends where you live, you know, uh, I know Hamilton has viewed itself as a competitor to Toronto over the years, but the reality is Toronto is one. Toronto's a population of 6 million people. Hamilton's a population of 525,000 people. The suburban dream is still alive here in Hamilton. We see that from the monthly sales data on housing. But those people born and raised in Toronto who are used to an urban environment, they, there's a, most of them do not seem willing to give that up. They like the convenience. They like being able to to lock the door on the condo and travel. They like to not have to shovel snow or mow the lawn or rake the leaves. And in terms of raising children, they seem to be comfortable with using public spaces for the period of raising their children rather than having their own. Um, So I do think there's an attitude difference, and I think that also is fueled apart by immigration. So the big cities also tend to be the hubs of our immigration. Most of the immigrants coming to this country are coming from other urbanized areas in the world, and therefore, it is not their expectation or an expectation that they would pass to their children to buy into that suburban dream that we know so well in Canada.
0: Hmm, good point. Uh, lots have chatted that and discussed that the answer here is a minimum wage, a minimum, uh, uh, either raising the minimum wage to a livable wage or, or having some sort of minimum wage. Uh, For those that are having difficulty, is it about raising wages in starter or that sort of jobs? Or is it about providing a path for the future to get them to progress beyond that? So so I'm going
2: to be controversial. Forgive me for doing this to you, Scott. I'm not sure it's about a living wage as much as it is the path. And what I mean by the path is something else has happened in the last 40 years is the abolition of the mandatory retirement age. We used to be able to look at a situation, take the school board and say, okay, in the next five years, 1,500 teachers are going to retire. They're going to turn 65, and they're going to stop teaching, and therefore we need to hire 1,500 teachers. But now that we don't have mandatory retirement, it's almost impossible for, whether it's private sector or public sector organizations, to know when these people are going to leave the system and therefore if I'm going to bring young people in for renewal and we need to renew these institutions I just don't know when to do it and I'm not even sure how to do it Uh, here at McMaster there are faculty members teaching well into their 70s I actually believe there's one colleague of mine in engineering who is in his 80s and still teaching and has no interest in retiring And I'm not saying he should be forced to retire But if you're that younger generation looking for jobs coming in, that pathway is far less certain than it was once upon a time. So, yes, I'm not trying to argue against those who want to have a living wage or a better minimum wage. But I think what's even more important is that we've got to start talking about this path to retirement for the baby boom generation to exit the market, to create the opportunities for young people investing in all the education we've told them to get so that they can get those good paying jobs
0: and let's remember in the old days uh most people lived a couple of years beyond their retirement and that was pretty much it now people in 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 a lot of cases are retired longer than they've than they've ever worked and obviously if you're living longer it's going to take more money uh to survive and you may have to work longer
5: mhm
2: and i've i've asked some people who do this is it economics and for some of them the answer is yes but for some others the answer is they don't have a retirement plan, retire to do what they say, just sit around yeah. and watch Wheel of Fortune or, or <laughs> buy a vowel and, and, and play Jeopardy. And the answer is no, you can lead a very full and constructive retired life, but I'm not sure anyone's prepared them for this, so they hold on to the life they have until such time as they really aren't able to continue it. And that's, that's a shame that we're not seeing uh, some people saying you know it is, there's a, a valuable time in my life I personally do not want to be working at McMaster and then drop dead in the classroom one day. I I have plans with my life, and at some point I will say that's a career, and it's time to move on. It's nice not to have to constrain it to the age 65, but I I just find there's a lot of people who are almost afraid of that next uh, phase of their life, retirement, and are unwilling to make room, and so then if I'm a young person, I'm waiting for those people to go, and they don't want to go.
0: Yeah, good point. Uh, What happens when the millennials or that age group becomes middle age? What is it going to look like then?
2: Yeah, so I I think you're going to see a different kind of of, uh, middle age in the future, one that is not, again, suburban and based, but more uh, urban and based. We're going to have a a home base of operation, what's called a condo of some sort, uh, that has a room or two in it. But if we're going to entertain, we'll do it in public spaces. If we're going to recreate, we do it in public spaces. Increasingly, we're going to see pressure on cars, especially if we have a a world of uh, self-driving vehicles. Maybe I don't have to have a car. I'll just call up and a robot will come and pick me up and take me where I have to go. Those robotic cars will be constantly circulating. I think if I look 20, 30 years down the road, I think that's an interesting future for us. But still the question becomes then, what about those young people 20 or 30 years from now Are we going to continue to see these trends? And I think the answer, again, is yes. I think companies are very reluctant to start offering full-time employment to young people. So we're going to see even more precarious employment in the future, more part-time, more contract work. I am hoping wages will recover. After all, Donald Trump says he's going to make America great again. If he's able to do it, then hello, milk and honey, and hello, those wages going up. And here again, the good news is not about getting more jobs. Our youth unemployment's fine. It's just getting better jobs and better paying jobs.
0: Marvin, it almost sounds like we're going backwards. <laughs>
2: yes, I think, that's, I think that's a fair comment. Uh, some of this is the stuff that we used to think was normal in the 1910s and 20s and 30s. We thought we had moved away from it. It was that whole middle-class dream. And now we're, we're discovering that when you change some of the basic principles of your uh, society, like the question around retirement, like living longer, we've invested a lot of money in the health care program My expectation is to live past 80, even though no one in my family before me has lived past that age. That's my expectation now. So when you change those principles, then how do you deal with things like work? We just can't leave it to the private sector. We have to have this kind of discussion uh, ongoing to think about, well, what is the future really have in store for us?
0: Uh, You bring up a valid point. So will it be society that makes that change? Or at the end of the day, do we just follow the almighty buck enslaved to that?
2: Well. I'm going to say there's roles for all of us. There's role for society. There's role for government. There's role for business, and all of this. It, it is unfortunate that I've used the word government at the same time that so many people have become disillusioned with government. In the first part of our conversation, the high hydro prices and the feeling that Kathleen Wynne, for instance, doesn't understand the average Ontarian. The reason why Trump got elected was the feeling was that most Republicans and Democrats didn't understand the average American. And so I think we've got to reconnect with the population and make sure as, as governments that we're hearing them. But then we need to tackle these kinds of issues. I don't think it's unsolvable. Uh, I think there are ways going forward, but we require innovation on all of us to make it happen.
0: How will we look back at this period in time, whether it's, you know, say uh, the decade from uh, the recession of 2008 right through, uh, say, 2018 and the election of a Donald Trump? How do you think we're going to look back at this, this yeah. decade? So
2: this, this is what we like to call a doldrum. This is a period where we're not shrinking, but we're not growing. We're flatlining. Everything's flat. And it has ground us down. You know, usually after a recession, the economy grows and there's some happiness at the other end. We have all been waiting for the dividend. You know, we struggled through the tough time. When do I get the, the good news finally? And we're not there. And again, I hate to say this, Scott, I'm not foreseeing a lot of that happening in 2017 either. But... I do believe, I still haven't given up on the idea that there will be a strong and robust recovery at some point. And when that comes, we're going to look back at this as the lost decade, a decade where nothing really advanced, everything seemed frozen. And instead of muddling through a a six-month or a nine-month recession, we actually had a struggle through a 10-year flat growth period. But I still think there are better days ahead.
0: Will we see it or will we not recognize it as it'll be so different from what we've been used to?
2: No, I think we will get back to that. You know, what we... And this is the other problem is there's nothing wrong in Canada because the world's economies, uh, Europe, the United States, and China, they've been struggling over this period of time. They have not been firing on all cylinders. Maybe it's a simple reminder to us all that Canada enjoys a wonderful standard of living only because we export. It's not because we're just buying our own goods domestically, but we really need the world's markets to be strong and they're not there. When it happens, we'll recognize it you you'll recognize it for several reasons, your interest rates will go up uh, you, you know you 'll see the return on investment going up in the stock market uh, those sorts of things you'll also see more prices at the fuel pump, but you'll see it in the paycheck as well. It's just we aren't there, and we aren't there for 10 years. It's really been a lost decade.
0: One last question. Will we learn anything from this lost decade, whether it's a, a, a way to modify capitalism, whether it's the way businesses look at each other, uh, leaving not leaving others behind? What will we learn from this?
2: You know, that's that's a really wonderful question, and I I knew in Canada that we had a strong banking industry, and that's how we got through those tough times. We also knew that the American industry had gotten too uh, deregulated and too decentralized, and there were problems. I am a little concerned with the early cabinet picks of Donald Trump. Uh, as much as he believes that billionaires are the right people to run the government because look how successful they've been themselves, some of the very people who caused the problem that led to that last recession in the United States are now receiving cabinet positions in the United States. I'm a little worried that we've got the hens guarding the chicken coop going forward. I think, I think here in Canada, we have learned But Donald Trump is demonstrating to me that maybe not everybody has.
0: Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.